Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Upgrade Podcast. I am Dr. Nawaz Habib. I am here in person with JP Erico and very excited about today's topic. I'm back in Florida speaking at a conference and I'm very excited to have the opportunity to be with you in person once again. Absolutely. And today we're going to talk about vagus nerve stimulation because this for me is a major piece to the future of healthcare. I think the vagus nerve has been overlooked for too long. I think that the use of vagus nerve stimulation has started to really blow up and for people to understand how vagus nerve stimulation works, the different types, and what we can utilize in a clinical setting, also in in like a personal setting where people can actually have potentially a device on their own, in their own hands, in their own purses, in their own pockets as they're going around. These are actual things that are happening. And I want to talk about the science of it. I want to talk about the difference between the different types of vagus nerve stimulation. And that's what we're going to dig into if there is a difference at all, which is really exciting to kind of talk about. So sure. thank you again for joining me. Glad to have you down here. Sorry it's so hot, but <laughs> that's what Florida is like in August. The air conditioning is wonderful here. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dig into essentially the very beginnings of understanding vagus nerve stimulation, and that is where did it really kind of come from? What's the history of vagus nerve stimulation? So vagus nerve stimulation has its roots in deep carotid massage, which was a technique, and frankly, I don't know where it started, but it was hundreds of years ago, a recognition by healthcare providers that if you took your thumb and you dug it into the neck and rubbed the carotid artery, that it would have clinical benefits in certain extreme acute situations, things like supraventricular tachycardia and status epilepticus, which is basically a persistent epileptic seizure that doesn't break. And so there was a recognition that you could do that with your thumb but it had some attending negative side effects. So it wasn't your first option, but it would also cause bronchoconstriction, cause bradycardia, cause the patient to potentially pass out. And so these were side effects that needed to be teased out of what the underlying therapy was. It was in the 1880s that Dr. Corning, who was a fairly well-known scientist in upstate New York, I believe a member of the Corning Glass family, was interested in the new research that was being done with respect to electricity and how electricity could be used to stimulate nerves. And it was his thesis, correct thesis, that the benefits of that deep carotid massage really derived from the effect that you were having not on the the carotid artery itself, but on the vagus nerve, and that the vagus nerve was, could be activated by pressure. And so he was actually the first person to, and he patented, the idea of a device that could be used to apply pressure and electricity to the nerve. His first ideas were to create a non-invasive device, which he termed an electrocompressor, and patented it. For those of us who are in the field, it's unfortunate that his ability to do that wasn't up to modern standards because it didn't catch on and it didn't do anything clinically. However, it did spark research. And so over the past 140 years since then, there's been a tremendous amount of research that's been done to understand what electrical stimulation parameters needed to be in order to make the therapy effective and to minimize the side effects that we talked about, the bradycardia, bronchoconstriction, etc. The interesting thing is that people who are currently thinking of vagus nerve stimulation as a new fad or a new burgeoning field, they're not wrong in that it is gaining a lot of attention, but There's been a lot of research that's gone over the last 140 years to understand exactly what vagus nerve stimulation does and how it can be therapeutically beneficial. And I think this is a perfect way for us to go through this conversation. How did it become what it is today over those many years? And just really briefly, as JP was mentioning, with regards to the anatomical component, I just want to, for those who don't have an anatomical background, the vagus nerve is the largest branch, the largest trunk of the vagus nerve does course in the neck directly adjacent to the carotid artery. 
that in fact does have branches that are the carotid baroreceptor branches that are measuring blood pressure in the carotid artery, which is the main blood vessel sending blood to the brain. And that's located within what's called the carotid sheath. And that happens, we've got actually two of them, two vagus nerves, two carotid arteries, two jugular veins, and they're going through the carotid sheath, one on each side of the neck. And so that's where the deep carotid massage had an adjacent positive effect on vagus nerve stimulation and the negative effects that were occurring were likely due to the physical compression of the carotid artery, not due to- Or the baroreceptors. Or the baroreceptors themselves, exactly. And so we were creating a negative pressure on the blood vessel, but having a positive effect on the nerve in certain cases. So this is where anatomically that deep carotid massage kind of came from. Yeah, it's, it's worth diving a little further into the anatomy of the vagus nerve. We, we use the term nerve, but yes. as you correctly point out, there's actually branches of it on both sides of the neck. It actually then spreads out and goes through the neck into the body, into the chest and abdomen. It branches out and touches almost all of the organs that are there and brings a tremendous amount of information back up to the brain. The vagus nerve is not one nerve. Yes. It is, in fact, hundreds of thousands of nerve fibers, a larger number on the right side than on the left side, although that isn't necessarily all that relevant because once the information gets back up into the brainstem, whether you're stimulating the right side or the left side, many of the same areas of the brain are activated as a result and they are on both sides of the brain. So simply stimulating the right side doesn't only activate the left side of the brain or only the right side of the brain, it, it goes bilaterally once it gets there. Yeah, and that's because the convergence is happening in the brainstem and not in the actual cerebrum. And the cerebrum is kind of split left and right brain where the brainstem is not as much. It is semi-split, but it's not as severe. And so essentially those signals, especially when they're going into the brain, are heavily connected to each other. Like the two sides are essentially inseparable. Yes. And there are multiple different types of fibers that are in the vagal bundle. But we refer to it as the vagal bundle because there are so many, there are hundreds of thousands of uh, fibers there. There are different types of fibers and they have different depolarization thresholds, which means the amount of electricity necessary to activate them. We have both A fibers, which are like A delta fibers, uh, the typical fiber type, but there's also C fibers. And C fibers take a much higher threshold of electricity in order for them to be activated. So you can probably tell where I'm going with that it is possible using the proper signals to stimulate only one set of those fibers versus the others in order to avoid the effects that might happen from the C fibers. If I said that C fibers are a higher threshold for activation, well, if you keep the signal low enough, you'll only stimulate the A delta fibers and not the C fibers. And that turns out to be therapeutically beneficial. Whereas you can't do that with your thumb. If you're stimulating the nerve with physical pressure, there's not a lot of difference between the pressure necessary to activate a C fiber versus a, an A delta fiber, or to the extent that there is a difference, you're not probably capable of doing that with your thumb through yeah. a person's skin and then the tissue between that and the, and the nerve. Yeah, the nuance of very minute changes on physical pressure is not what you can do where you can be very nuanced with electricity signals, frequencies, etc. Absolutely. So that's where we can get into the real meat and potatoes and really stick to a very heavily clinically positive benefit or a very targeted approach. Exactly. Now, it's also worth noting that the vagus nerve does not only branch out once it gets to the chest and abdomen. There is a branch of the vagus nerve, it's actually called the tragus nerve, that exists in your face and it actually goes up into your ear canal, in the vicinity of your ear canal, and it connects down in the neck to the vagus nerve. That branch very small branch that has about 1% of the fibers, 1% to 2% of the fibers. Those fibers appear to only be bringing information back up into the brain stem, not sending information from the brain back down to the body, because of course it doesn't go to the body, it's only going into the ear. But it turns out to be a, an interesting, accessible point for stimulating the vagus nerve. The other thing I was going to say is that, as I said, it branches out once it gets past the neck into the chest and abdomen, but there's a very large number of those fibers that go into and, and connect with the enteric nervous system, mm -hmm. which is, of course, the nervous system that's not independent of, but evolved independently from the brain. It's the nervous system that surrounds your, your digestive system. And the ability to uh, communicate directly with that enteric nervous system turns out to be extremely important, not only for managing physiological processes, but it may actually have a role in consciousness itself, which sounds 
very Star Trek-y or a little new age, but it's a very exciting way in which researchers are beginning to explain why it is that we have a self-awareness, why we have consciousness, because we have signals coming up from our viscera that are telling us how we're functioning and give us an understanding of what's self and what's not self neurologically, not simply immunologically or otherwise. Not that those two systems don't talk to one another, they obviously do, but it's an exciting area of research, and I look forward to seeing how that, how that pans out. Yeah, and we plan to have some amazing guests to talk about this exact topic future episodes of the podcast, so we're really excited about that as well. Why don't we start digging into some of the kind of basic science behind the vagus nerve stimulation itself and how we were able to determine that vagus nerve was being stimulated versus not being stimulated and how the science kind of progressed through. Sure. Well, the, the big breakthrough in terms of leaping forward in, in clinical capability came as a result of people at Cyberonics. Cyberonics was a company that was based in Houston. They actually were subsequently purchased. They don't exist as that company anymore. But they decided to take this 100 years worth of research from 1880 to the 1980s and bring it into clinical use. And so the easiest way to access the vagus nerve was, in fact, to put an implantable device like a pacemaker, in fact, it used to be called the pacemaker for the brain, be implanted into the body with a wire connected directly around and mounted around the vagus nerve to stimulate it. And so the original work was done by their researchers, and they had focused on epilepsy. We talked about the benefits of deep carotid massage on treating epilepsy. The idea was, let's use vagus nerve stimulation to prevent epileptic seizures from occurring. And so the work that they did was initially in animals, and they demonstrated in a very extreme model of epilepsy that involves actually lethally poisoning an animal with strychnine, they demonstrated that they could block the seizure activity that was triggered by that toxin. That was a very exciting moment in history of medical development of the therapy, but it also gave rise to the question of how is it doing this? Um, we understand that it's different from a deep carotid massage. We didn't really understand how that did it either, but there was a lot of research done understanding the connections of the vagus nerve into the brain and how it might stop a seizure from occurring or block one that had already begun. And so that research led to an understanding of different neurotransmitter systems or relied and leveraged the understanding that was already being developed in parallel around neurotransmitter systems. And so in short, and there's a lot more nuance to this, of course, but when a signal is coming up along those fibers coming into the brainstem, the first stop, if you will, along that pathway is the nucleus tractus solitarius, which is an elongated structure in the very base of the brainstem that then allows those fibers to sort of relay bilaterally. Even though they're maybe coming through one branch, they bilaterally go to all areas of the brain. But specifically, one of the first areas that it goes to is to the locus ceruleus. And I think we've talked about the locus ceruleus before, but just to recap, it's a very small nucleus of neurons in the brainstem that are only about 50 or 60,000 nerves. When you think about the fact that the brain is 86 billion neurons, 50,000, you lose 50,000 a day easily yeah. just from living. Um, and yet this tiny little nucleus, the locus ceruleus, has these 50,000 neurons that have incredible breadth of extension. Their uh, reach into the full brain is, is unbelievable. And they are the primary source of norepinephrine. So the practical upshot is that when you stimulate the vagus nerve with the right frequency signal and the right amplitude, that the effect is you will increase the release of norepinephrine from the locus ceruleus. From there, there's a connection to a number of other areas of the brain that are important for different neurotransmitter systems. For example, very close by, localized in that same area, is what's referred to as the dorsal raphi nucleus. And that is a source of serotonin. We all know what serotonin is, an inhibitory neurotransmitter associated with relaxation and, and comfort etc. That is activated very quickly too. So you get a serotonergic signal along with the noradrenergic signal that you got from the locus ceruleus. Noradrenergic meaning norepinephrine and serotonergic obviously referring to serotonin. From there, there's also a connection to another nucleus that's a little higher up in the brainstem called the nucleus bacillus of Maynard's. Um, that is much like the locus ceruleus, but it's, it's small in size, but it's incredibly diverse in where it's sending signals. 
and sending the neurotransmitter that's involved, that's acetylcholine. That's the source of most of the acetylcholine in the brain. And when you think about how all the brain functions work, not just in the brainstem, but all the way through the neocortex, you have basically most things being controlled by four neurotransmitters along with glutamate. Glutamate is a neurotransmitter also, but you have serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and acetylcholine. Obviously, you have GABA. It's a very important inhibitory neurotransmitter. But those four neurotransmitter systems really drive a tremendous amount of what's going on in the central nervous system. And all of them are accessible through the vagus nerve. And you can modulate all of those neurotransmitter activities by stimulating the vagus nerve properly. And that's really important to understand as well with regards to when the vagus nerve is functioning properly, when there is good vagal tone, when there aren't burdens of stress that are creating a challenge in that system causing vagus nerve dysfunction, then you are able to actively have those neurotransmitters turned on and essentially functioning properly. And so that's an important piece of the puzzle here. Often we forget that a proper functioning vagus nerve is not generally who we are targeting with therapeutic evidence. What we're targeting is those people who are having trouble in creating those reactions and creating that vagal tone. That's where vagus nerve stimulation can come in really handy because it can essentially amplify the effect of a dysfunctional vagus nerve and get those biochemical neurotransmitter balances back. Yeah, and that balance that you're talking about really is a balance between the parasympathetic, which is primarily the vagus nerve, and the sympathetic nervous system. The two of them together form the autonomic nervous system that we talk about quite frequently. One is the parasympathetic, or the vagus nerve, is your rest, digest, and restore mode. The other, uh, which is the sympathetic, is more of your fight-or-flight mode. And so we've talked about how Western society has so many pressures that make us more sympathetically driven. And unfortunately, sympathetic-driven individuals oftentimes have dysfunctions, not just externally in their lives that would cause them to be under stress, but they have dysfunctions inside their bodies associated with inflammation or, for example, iron metabolism problems. We've recently talked about iron metabolism. And so there's a host of different metabolic and inflammatory problems that can cause you, even absent external stress, to be under sympathetic activation. And vagus nerve stimulation is an opportunity to use readily available technology to amplify that parasympathetic tone to balance out what might be driving a sympathetic tone and, as a result, relieve symptoms that are associated with that sympathetic overdrive. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that this is where we should go therapeutically. And so let's talk about with vagus nerve stimulation, how did we start to figure out that the electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve was actually working and was actually creating that vagus nerve activation that we're looking for? It's a great question. And, and the question really comes down to sort of two sides of it. One is, how do you know that the various modalities that you're using have the ability to stimulate the vagus nerve? Mm -hmm. And the second is, okay, now you've convinced me that you've stimulated the vagus nerve how do I know that there's a real clinical benefit? What evidence is there that there's clinical benefit to doing this? Yes. And so let's talk a little bit about the first. A lot of the work to demonstrate that the vagus nerve stimulation with an implantable could be achieved and that there was a way to tune the electrical signal and the frequency and the amplitude in such a way to have sort of a consistent positive benefit. A lot of that initial work was done even prior to Cybronics, but Cybronics did a lot of good work and their scientists to demonstrate that they had the right signal, the right frequency, the right duty cycle, et cetera. I'll come back to the duty cycle because I think that that's probably the one area of weakness in their research. Okay. When we had developed non-invasive approaches, there was a real question among neurologists, practicing neurologists, as well as neuroscientists, as to whether or not those modalities were actually stimulating the vagus nerve in the same way. And so there's the easiest way to do that was to sort of follow in the footsteps of what researchers had done with the implantable device. And one of those was to demonstrate that those same neurotransmitter systems were being activated. And so a lot of the work that was initially done by Cybronics was just followed. Things like fMRI work, EEG work, et cetera, were done to demonstrate that 
whether you're accessing the vagus nerve at the ear with a, a transcutaneous signal based or delivered to the tragus nerve or to the trunk of the vagus nerve in the neck. In both cases, there was work done that paralleled what was done with the implantable and demonstrated preclinically that you could do it. There were other ways to do it also that, that Cybronix didn't have to do. Mm -hmm. That when you had an implant, you didn't have to do electric field modeling. The ability to access the vagus nerve through the tragus or at the cervical branch externally, we had to do that kind of, of research. Course. And that research has been done and it's been published and it demonstrates that you can deliver a non-invasive signal to the vagus nerve with the appropriate signal still intact to be able to activate the right fibers in the vagus nerve. It actually turns out that, at least with respect to the work that has been done with the cervical branch of vagus, that you can differentiate, even externally, you can differentiate between the C fibers that cause those activation problems like bradycardia and bronchoconstriction versus the positive clinical benefits. And so that's really great because you can then know that you're targeting the right fibers to get the effect that you're looking for absolutely. in particular. Absolutely. So that's really wonderful. And, and having these outcome measures and these studies that show through electrical activation, through EEG, through fMRI, that you are able to get that direct effect proves that you don't need to surgically go in and put in an implanted device to get the same clinical benefit, which is really exciting because surgery, as necessary as it is in certain cases, I think we want to minimize the risk of negative effects. And this is where surgery can have a lot of, it's A, it's expensive, B, it's invasive. You're literally cutting somebody open. You're creating no susception. You're creating pain. You're creating long-term rehabilitation that would need to occur as well. And then what if the device isn't working or what if there's a challenge, then replacing or removing the device does require other pieces. So this is where I think there's a benefit to knowing that non-invasive cervical or auricular do create very similar effects and have that very positive benefit that you can get. Absolutely. And, and I think anybody would agree that non-invasively delivering a therapy is, is superior to doing it invasively. Getting back to the point that was said before, because it ties back in here, that the people at Cyberonics did tremendous work around the right frequencies, the right amplitudes. The one area where I said there was a little weakness in what they did was in understanding the duty cycle. And if you understand their perspective, you'll see why it is that they never pursued a non-invasive approach. They stuck with the implanted approach. It's because in the original models of epilepsy that they were working with, these were animals that had been poisoned with strychnine and were going through a period of continuously seizing. It was a lethal dose. The dogs they were doing this research on were ultimately going to die. It's unfortunate that they had to choose dogs. I'm a dog fan. But what they demonstrated was that an activation of the vagus nerve was able to stop the seizure activity. And even after they turned it off, it would stay suppressed. That seizure activity would stay suppressed for about four to five minutes. And so their expectation was that when they transferred over to a clinical model of actual clinical epilepsy, that their signal needed to be on that frequently. Now, in retrospect, that may not have been appropriate, may not have been a correct assumption. In fact, a lot of the early clinical work that they did in their first pilot studies demonstrated that perhaps it wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. That stimulation, for example, in their first pilot study, the stimulation was only on once every hour. But even at once every hour, that puts a burden on the patient to utilize a non-invasive device and voluntarily stimulate probably more than most patients will do. You know, getting a patient to take one pill a day is pretty easy. Asking a patient to take two pills a day starting to get a little more difficult. By the time you get to three doses a day, you start to find lack of compliance with mm -hmm. the therapy. I can only imagine what it would be like if you told them they had to do it every hour. 24 pills a day is not exactly an easy right. thought process. Or 24 times a day doing a one to two minute stimulation. It's not as easy as just popping a pill and downing some water with it. We understand why it is that they believe that an, an implantable device was necessary. Fortunately, we have learned a lot. We've done the dose ranging. We understand now that the benefits are far longer and a simple stimulation of a minute or two has benefits that will last for many hours, if not in some cases, depending on the, the application, maybe even a day or two. So 
there's been advances that allow us now to do the non-invasive approach. Which is really important. We want to make it as easy as possible for patients to utilize a therapy and making it really difficult essentially creates a rift between the practitioner saying, we need you to do this, and the patient saying yes or no. And so if the patient's not going to use it, obviously it doesn't do you any good. Right. So that's great. Let's get into some of the early work that led to an understanding of symptomatic relief through vagus nerve stimulation. And what were some of those conditions that were initially being addressed? Well, even in the mechanistic work that we talked about with EEG work and and fMRI work, Mm -hmm. there was some already forward thinking towards what type of problems can we solve with this mechanism? Mm -hmm. So for example, we did work with an EEG looking at various neurotransmitter systems that were activated by external stimuli. So for example, it had been previously determined or shown that if you play very closely timed tones in a person's ear, so for example, a first tone followed 500 milliseconds later by a second tone, that the brain responds to that in a very defined way. So what you'll see is that the brain will will respond with a spike of activity right after the first tone is played. For most healthy people, the second tone, which is identical to the first, will elicit a smaller response. This is a fairly understandable response. The the brain's first experience is going to require a, a large amount of calculations, if you will, to to process that. And the second one that's identical, it's already identified, the brain's already identified even within that short period of time that it's non-threatening and that it is something that doesn't require the same level of processing effort. It turns out that for people who have experienced post-traumatic stress disorder or experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder or other injuries, uh, traumatic brain injuries, they don't have that reduced second response they have that same response each time. And so one of the things that we did with the EEG work was demonstrate that you could suppress the response of that second pulse, even in a model where the individual was more likely to have a PTSD or a traumatic brain injury condition. So it already led us to think that, okay, even though we're mechanistically showing that we have this effect on acetylcholine or we have this effect on norepinephrine with other models um, or other or stimulation parameters, that we're seeing those neurotransmitter responses, but we're also seeing the responses of the brain, mm-hmm. um, not just in terms of the release of neurotransmitters, but in the electrical activity and how that might map into a clinical application. Beyond that, we also looked at at animal models. And, and when I say we, some of it was done with the work that we were doing, but there's other work that was done that you know we've read and we understand. Things like looking at cortical spreading depression. So cortical spreading depression is a phenomenon that occurs in the brain when there's either a chemical imbalance or an injury or a genetic predisposition that starts at one location in the brain and spreads out as a wave of neurons being depolarized. So you see this high activity at the periphery, and then as it expands out, that tissue becomes sort of non-responsive. And so you have this wave of activity and then a follow-on dearth of activity. We did work demonstrating that the predisposition to cortical spraying depressions or the frequency with which they occur could be altered using vagus nerve stimulation. And we looked to see whether or not the specific neurotransmitter systems or inflammation that made it more likely that these would happen could be altered. Now, what are the clinical applications of cortical spreading depression? Because that's a a mechanistic thing. We were doing animal studies. What does that translate into clinically? Well, cortical spreading depressions are the believed to be the mechanism or the phenomenon that underlies the aura that a person experienced who has migraines might experience prior to having the migraine attack. What clinically that means is that a patient will have a visual disturbance, or it could be even the ability to hear properly or the ability to speak. It depends on where that activity is taking place, but it's most commonly seen in a visual disturbance. And that visual disturbance will begin as a bright flashing area in your visual field that will then expand out, and, and, and there's literally an area in which you can't see anything. It's, it's a section of your visual field that is that you're blind in. 
that may last for a few minutes to maybe 45 minutes, and then it will subside. But shortly thereafter or during that period, the pain phase of the migraine comes in. So it's believed that either that's a symptom of what's to come or it's actually contributing to the migraine phase, the pain phase. And so showing that we could reduce the frequency, reduce the susceptibility of the brain to that was a very positive thing. And it mapped also to what you see in epilepsy because while it's not exactly the same, cortical sprain depression phenomena are similar to epileptiform responses in the brain. So it made sense that we would see that because we already knew clinically from the implanted devices that it was successful in epilepsy. It's also something that happens in stroke when you have um, an area of the brain that's damaged due to a lack of oxygen getting to that tissue. The tissue that's been deprived of oxygen will die. The tissue that surrounds it may be under oxygen deprivation or hypoxia, hypoxia that isn't necessarily killing those cells, but it's putting them under tremendous stress. And when they are under stress, that can send out waves of cortical spread and depression. As an aside, it's always been interesting to me why it is that cortical sprain depression, which seems to lead to pain and dysfunction, why it would be something that would be preserved. What is it doing that is positive, mm-hmm. that is a reason why it is remained something that occurs as opposed to simply evolutionarily being removed? And the answer appears to be, at least one answer is, that it's alerting the immune system to damage And a second answer, which I find fascinating, is that it's actually preparing the tissue around that area and actually throughout the brain to the possibility of a long-term hypoxia. So it actually makes that tissue, even though it's painful, even though it's disruptive, it's actually attempting to modulate that tissue into being able to be more tolerant of a low oxygen environment. That's really interesting. And I think... I want to just quickly head back to the idea of the cortical spreading depression and something that was found in the research that pointed to, in a symptomatic case where the aura was starting in an acute scenario, as soon as you're able to kind of get that stimulation going as quickly as possible, you can blunt that response very quickly. And so the subsequent migraine progression and the aura progression leading to that migraine can be blunted significantly. And that's often where we get that best clinical outcome is in those acute scenarios where the the flashing light in the corner just starts at that point and we can catch it early on. So it's really interesting because it's really just limiting the effect of what could occur. Exactly. Exactly. And that's true of medications. It's true of really any therapy in headache. The earlier it's delivered, the more effective it's going to be. And the ideal is to minimize the impact it's going to have by even predicting when the headaches are going to occur and treating them prophylactically. Yeah, which is even better if you can do it preventatively and not even get into that situation, then phenomenal. Why not, right? Exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Wonderful. Let's continue on into understanding the blood-brain barrier and how it is impacted in this particular scenario with vagus nerve stimulation as well. Yeah, a lot of the work that's been done in understanding the effect of vagus nerve stimulation on the blood-brain barrier actually comes out of the work in stroke. So we were just touching on stroke, ischemic stroke. One of the researchers that that we happen to work with that's been very instrumental in understanding how vagus nerve stimulation can be used in this capacity is up at Harvard. Her name is Ilkner I, and she has actually studied vagus nerve stimulation in all three different major modalities, both implantable cervical access and uh, non-invasive cervical and non-invasive stimulation of the the tragus nerve. Um, She's used various different animal models. And what she's discovered is that what happens in an ischemic stroke situation, so what they do is they go in, they place a balloon and expand the balloon inside an artery in the brain to basically block, to simulate a, a clot, to simulate the lack of oxygen, oxygenated blood having access to the tissue. And they leave it there for some period of time, and the animal will then experience what we talked about before, hypoxic damage to a certain area of the brain. And then they deflate the balloon, they remove it, and now you have what's referred to as reperfusion. There's now more blood that's oxygenated getting back into that tissue. Some portion of it is already dead, it's already damaged, but 
the surrounding area is what's under a lot of stress. And what she's discovered is that vagus nerve stimulation has the ability to reduce how damaging that ongoing stress is to that referred to as the penumbra, mm. the area around the dead tissue. And so the idea was, would it be possible to use vagus nerve stimulation to reduce the ultimate size of the lesion by blocking the cortical spreading depression? And the understanding was that it was likely going to block or minimize the intrusion or influx of very angry immune cells into the tissue. The thought was that immune cells coming in thinking that there was damage that might be non-sterile had to become very pro-inflammatory and that that attempt to block bacterial or non-sterile injury from progressing would actually sacrifice the surrounding brain tissue and cause the lesion to grow. That's likely the case because what we found is that in various different ways of doing this, it did alter the microglial cells, the innate immune cells that were being recruited by that cortical sprain depression. It reduced their level of pro-inflammatory stance. And it did have the ability in the models to reduce that secondary or collateral damage by up to 60 or 70%. It mapped to, and similar results were found with using chemical modulators of those same cells. So, for example, cholinergic agonists were able to have a similar effect. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the parallel between vagus nerve stimulation and the use of vagus nerve stimulation to modulate the immune system and specifically through the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, both the peripheral and the central. So a lot of work's been done by Ilkner I and her team to look at the preclinical side of things and have demonstrated with both implantable, non-invasive cervical and non-invasive auricular stimulation, which activates the tragus nerve, that they all seem to have very similar effects, which is very positive. It's demonstrating that it really doesn't matter which way you do it. It doesn't matter what color dye you put in the medication. The medication's still doing the same thing anyway. Right. So the therapeutic benefit for all is the same. So how can we get that quickest, best beneficial response? And it's through vagus nerve stimulation of some form, which is wonderful. Okay. I love that. Um, I think that clarifies kind of the understanding here that what we're trying to do is limit the immune system activation. I think the immune system gets a lot of really bad rap saying that it's either in a completely pro-inflammatory autoimmune state where it's going to break everything down and it's the end of the world or it's just not able to do its job and you're the victim of viral and bacterial influence. And it's really important to note that the immune system, and we're talking a lot about this separately and outside of this particular podcast, that the immune system really truly is the builder of our entire body. It's so important for optimal function and it requires a certain number of inputs and a certain type of input of particularly acetylcholine to modify and, and maintain that builder and maintenance status. And when that acetylcholine signal is decreased or eliminated, that's when we get into an issue with regards to hyperinflammatory processes versus having proper homeostatic function through vagus nerve optimization and through vagus nerve stimulation. Yeah, and one of the things that we've seen is that while there's the M1 polarization, the M2 polarization, very, very limiting in using those terms, yes. but um, the pro-inflammatory versus the homeostatic state of the microglial cells or macrophages, one of the things we've seen is more and more research seems to show that the macrophages or microglial cells in the case of the brain that are tissue resident, mm -hmm. that are there all the time, that may even have first shown up within a few days of conception that are present throughout your life are much more likely to be anti-inflammatory or non-inflammatory doing those homeostatic activities. But in the case of an injury that the tissue is not protected enough in a case of a trauma by just those macrophages or those microglial cells. 
and that we have a store of additional, let's say, macrophages on demand mm -hmm. that we can deploy into just that tissue to take on a much more robust pro-inflammatory stance. So what we have is in the brain, in the case of stroke, for example, which we've been talking about, you have an injury. There's a call to action for microglial cells to come in. But microglial cells are sort of, I won't call them inadequate, mm. but they're insufficient yes. to simply take on the full pro-inflammatory state that needs to be present if that injury were something like a hole in your head. In the case of obviously a stroke, that's not the case, but your immune system doesn't know that. Yeah. And so there's a very complicated signaling process that takes place with the brain and the peripheral immune system that opens up the blood-brain barrier, getting back to your question from before, that opens up the blood-brain barrier and allows those recruited monocytes or macrophages to enter into the tissue and differentiate into sort of the reserve troops that are there to cause, to assist in the damage. Now, they don't survive there very long. They'll stay there for some period of time and then leave. But like a group of soldiers that come in for a temporary period of time, they don't really care what kind of damage they do. So they tend to be a lot more damaging to the tissue that's supposed to remain there. And then they leave and then it's left to the microglial cells to try to heal and try to regenerate that tissue and sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes that process is distorted mm -hmm. and you get more fibrosis as opposed to true regeneration. We've talked about that in the case of scarring or in the liver or in the kidneys. But the ideal is to minimize that ability of those external, outside the brain monocytes to come into, to come through that blood-brain barrier. And so some work that was done following on the work that Ilkner I had done up at Harvard was done out at the University of New Mexico. Um, there was a team of people, Yi Yang and her team, did work showing that in that same kind of model, that you could track how the blood-brain barrier was responding, whether or not you were stimulating the vagus nerve or activating this cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And what that study showed was that there was tremendous changes in that you could actually prevent a lot of the influx of those monocytes into the tissue and prevent that level of inflammation from occurring. There was a time limit on that. You had to do it within a certain period of time because once they came in, it was trying to close the barn door after the cow had already left. You can't do it. But the time frame was a matter of hours. It wasn't minutes. Okay. So there's a potential therapeutic application there. Essentially, in those major acute circumstances, the key is, can you limit the damage? Can you limit how much damage occurs? And that's really what the vagus nerve stimulation piece is trying to do, both with regards to tissue resident macrophage activation becoming more homeostatic, more progenitor building type, versus that inflammatory activated form of those tissue residents. And then when it comes to the blood-brain barrier, limiting how many of those Navy SEALs or firefighters come in and will create that excessive amount of damage potentially. And so we limit the damage. That's really the key here in those acute scenarios. And that's where stroke and uh, TBI, I imagine, is very similar as well. We want to ensure that we're not getting an excessive inflammatory influx of immune cells. Exactly. And that's not to suggest that somehow the body isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's simply responding to something that it believes could be a lot worse. Exactly. So would that influx of monocytes be appropriate if there was a bacterial infection or open wound? Absolutely, you would need that. But there's also the question which is, why is it, and it's an open question where there's still a lot of research to be done, why is it that in those circumstances that after those, as you said, the firefighters leave and the maintenance crew has to figure out how to fix everything, why is it that we spend as much energy and as much time simply make the tissue fibrotic, scarring, versus maybe healing it all the way and regenerating all the way, because we don't see that in a lot of cases. Some cases, it takes time. Sometimes there's coping mechanisms, especially in the central nervous system, where you can get other areas of the brain to sort of step in and do the tasks. But it would be wonderful to understand why it is that 
microglial cells in that, even though they're in the homeostatic state, in the regenerative state, they move in the direction of, instead of just truly rebuilding because they were there during the neurodevelopmental steps, why is it that they move more into a fibrotic um, activity versus regenerative right off the bat? Um, I'm sure there's reasons why. It may be just too difficult mm-hmm. for those cells to be able to do it quickly enough. But if we could figure out how to amplify that true regeneration yeah. versus scarring and fibrosis, that would be beneficial not only for stroke patients and, and for other people who have head injuries, but for liver injuries, cirrhosis of the liver, kidney damage, heart attacks, where the tissue that's left behind is damaged and it's not being regenerated in the way that would be ideal. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I think there's some, hopefully some exciting work to come out of many institutions that will uh, give us some leeway on how to create that regenerative uh, support that we would ideally be looking for. Let's dig into, we started talking about tissue resident macrophages. I think that's a great place for us to lead into different conditions that vagus nerve activation has actually been shown to be beneficial for as we went through the entire kind of history and timeline of VNS. So let's start a little bit with asthma. Well, it's an area that's near and dear to my heart because uh, that's how I got involved in the space. It actually actually started looking at anaphylactic shock, Mm. but that quickly evolved into not only anaphylaxis, but other forms of shock. And the researchers we were working with said, the benefits that we're seeing in airway patency is really interesting. Let's look at asthma. And that's actually where we did our first true clinical work. And it's a great opportunity to talk about, because the topic of this is is demonstrating how various different modalities of vagus nerve stimulation may have similar benefits or should have similar benefits. One of the areas that we focused on was asthma. And we did our first clinical work with a percutaneous approach. So it wasn't it wasn't necessarily dissecting out the vagus nerve from the carotid sheath and wrapping a helical lead around the nerve. It was simply placing a what's a deep brain lead, if you will, for deep brain stimulation, but we, we used it in this application, placing the lead through a percutaneous stick in the vicinity of the vagus nerve, so close, and then using an external stimulator to provide the signal, but the actual electrical signal was being provided to the nerve directly, pretty close to directly. And we found clinical benefit in that. That study's been published in a peer-reviewed journal. We then followed up around that time with developing a non-invasive approach. And so the non-invasive approaches, and actually multiple approaches, were then tested to see how they would do under exactly the same kind of clinical uh, circumstances, which were patients who had severe asthma attacks that had failed sort of the standard of care treatment at home, albuterol or similar types of bronchodilators, had come into the emergency room. So these were patients who were being monitored, pretty significantly monitored by medical professionals who were failing the standard of care there, um, nebulized medications, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and were then given the opportunity, rather than literally be admitted to the hospital or continue suffering, to have this sort of new therapy. In the case of the percutaneous approach, it actually involved sticking something into their necks In the case of the non-invasive approach, it was a non-invasive short-term treatment. And what we found was in both cases that the benefits were very similar. It was within the same time frame that the benefits were appreciated and the same magnitude of benefits were appreciated. So that gave us a really good sense that the non-invasive approach, at least in the case of pilot studies we were doing asthma, that there were similar benefits. In epilepsy, for example, not in the case of using a a non-invasive cervical approach, but a non-invasive the auricular approach. The work that Cybronics did in epilepsy, there's a tremendous amount of clinical research that that shows the benefits and what you would expect to see in a a study. A lot of that work has been mirrored using uh, non-invasive approaches using auricular stimulation. So again, showing the implantable and the auricular stimulator were similar, not just in the animal studies, but these are human clinical studies. Yeah, absolutely. Asthma is an important one for me as well. Just as a side note, I did have exertional asthma as a kid. And even worse, my brother had pretty severe asthma growing up. And so I saw the use of nebulized medication and I saw what happened in those acute asthmatic attacks. I'm so excited for the fact that we're now learning about non-invasive approaches with minimal side effects that are not going to create long-term negative unintended consequences because a lot of these nebulized medications 
have now been shown to have an increased risk of obesity and diabetes following their use, which is crazy in childhood. So we're seeing a lot of that years later, the negative effects of simply using these medications, which were necessary in those acute scenarios. And we didn't yet have the science and, and whatnot 20, 30 years ago to push us in the direction of going towards vagus nerve stimulation in the acute uh, scenario. But we're seeing progress, and that's what's really exciting to me personally as well. Yeah, and I think it's it's exciting from a scientist's standpoint as well because we're understanding that albuterol has a certain mechanism of action and how it works. Um, and vagus nerve stimulation, whether it be implanted or auricular or, or cervical, non-invasive, it has similar clinical symptom relief, mm -hmm. but is it doing it? in any way that's similar? Is it doing it in a way that is mechanistically similar? And I think the answer, there's still a lot of work to be done. These are, these are not clinically approved therapies, but although there is an, uh, an emergency use authorization for one of those devices in the context of COVID and breathing problems with COVID, but again, is the mechanism the same? I think the work is gonna show that it isn't. What we're seeing is that the difference appears to be that albuterol, and bronchodilators have a enhancement of sensitivity. Okay. And so what I mean by that is you're having an asthma attack. That means that the tissue in your airways have been sensitized and are responding to a trigger by becoming stressed and, and constricting. That the medication physically blocks the nervous signal tension, that constriction. Mm -hmm. So it's directly blocking it, but it does nothing to prevent that sensitivity from getting worse. Mm -hmm. And what we see is that you progressively need to use albuterol and bronchodilators more and more because each use provides you with a temporary relief, but it causes a greater sensitivity. And that's why a lot of medication, a lot of people who have asthma, are given sort of a two-phase treatment. One is the dilator, which they're told, don't use this that frequently, and they're on a steroid. The steroid has the ability to reduce that sensitivity. Yeah. So it reduces what they, what the respiratory medicine, uh, medical professionals or, or uh, pulmonologists refer to as airway twitchiness. It's reducing the twitchiness in that tissue. Vagus nerve stimulation, at least the preliminary data seems to suggest that it does not relieve the bronchospasm okay. by the same mechanism. And it's a mechanism that does not cause an increase in the twitchiness. The twitchiness appears to be enhanced because there's an inflammation that remains after that spasm that actually damages the tissue. If you can reduce that inflammation, and we've talked a lot about how vagus nerve stimulation's primary mechanism very well may be not only the neurotransmitter changes in the brain, but the anti-inflammatory pathway that it triggers, that it reduces that airway twitchiness. And by reducing it, it actually may make you less susceptible to the next attack. Again, preliminary work needs to be followed up on, needs to be researched in clinical studies beyond pilot studies with the right endpoints being measured and the right tests being done. But mechanistically, that's the direction that we think that the research is going to go. I'm really excited to hear more about this as we kind of go through and maybe we'll do a full episode on asthma because I think it's an important one. And I'd love to hear as we kind of go through, are we affecting mast cells? Are we affecting macrophages? What, what is that target tissue? Is it, is it potentially all of them? Is it all of the immune cells that are resident within the, the lungs, the alveolar macrophages or the mast cells that are there that are becoming hypersensitized to whatever that trigger is? Is it the acetylcholine that's affecting those receptors? And we don't need to get into that right now, but it's uh, you can see the wheels are turning in my brain right now. Absolutely. It's exciting. And, you know, one of the things I love about this topic in this, this area of research, whether it be talking about macrophages and the parallel functions that they do in the brain versus the liver versus reproductive organs and how there's such a parallel in using the same tools mm -hmm. but just in a different tissue. I see the same thing occurring in asthma 
as in migraine. Yes. So one of the areas that, that we've spent a lot of research on, and it's, it is an area where there is clinical approval or FDA approval, regulatory approval, for the use of vagus nerve stimulation is in the treatment of headache. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great area to talk about in the context of demonstrating the parallels between implanted devices versus non-invasive approaches and how they really do have a very similar clinical benefit. Some of the first studies that were done in, in epilepsy led people to think, well, epilepsy and aura, very similar phenomena going on in the brain, is it possible that vagus nerve stimulation might be beneficial? Of course, it was still an implantable, so pilot studies were performed, probably a, you know close to a handful of pilot studies with you know a few dozen patients, not a lot. But what they showed was that vagus nerve stimulation appeared to have a benefit in treating headache. Non-invasive techniques came along, non-invasive devices were developed, and it became much easier to apply that therapy in headache. And so, as I mentioned, that has been done with multiple studies looking at neuromodulation using vagus nerve stimulation to treat migraines and cluster headaches and other severe forms of headache. And the results have followed on with very similar results. The benefits are there with non-invasive to the point where they've gained re regulatory approval as they are with the original implantable um, studies. The interesting thing I find about headache is not only is there a lot of comorbidity between asthma and headache, a lot of familial comorbidity. And by, what I mean by familial comorbidity is you may have migraines, but not asthma. But because you have migraines, your children have a higher propensity for having asthma. And so what we see is that's very similar in migraine, very similar in headache. There's a lot of crosstalk. And much the same way we were just talking about how bronchodilators, when used, relieve the immediate symptoms, but can lead to a higher level of sensitization, a higher level of twitchiness in the airways. A similar phenomenon happens in migraine. Uh, for people who have headaches, they're typically looking to use analgesic medications, whether it be over-the-counter, non-steroidal, provide a temporary re relief, they may break that specific migraine, or at least reduce the pain associated with it, but that you can have what's referred to as medication overuse headache. Medication usage of the same type through the same mechanism over and over again, repeatedly, leads to a dependency. Not exactly a dependency in the same way you get like an opioid dependency or an alcohol dependency or a tobacco dependency, but you get a dependency in that you're going to experience or more likely to experience a headache if you stop taking that medication. And so we've looked at that as, a, as an, another potential opportunity for the treatment of patients who have this medication dependency that is leading to them having headaches, having an alternative way to treat themselves that's FDA cleared that allows them to potentially minimize that sensitivity and reverse that sensitization process. See that in, 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 in patients in clinical studies, at this point pilot studies, but it's very interesting. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about some of the upcoming research or some of the research that's been done on other conditions as well that are linked mechanistically, but very different phenotypically uh, in terms of things like obesity, and let's get into the gut after that as well. But let's start with obesity. Sure. Um, so we've talked about the fact that obesity is an inflammatory condition. Mm -hmm. You can have obesity and still be metabolically healthy, but that obesity tends to lead a person to having conditions like type 2 diabetes and other things. One of the early uh, observations that the people at Cyberonics, the people who developed the implanted vagus nerve stimulators, identified in their animal studies was that animals tended to lose a lot of weight um, once having an implant put in. When they got to humans, they saw some of that. They didn't see exactly the same thing because humans don't necessarily eat simply, you know, for simplistic reasons. They sometimes eat for psychosocial reasons. And what they found, however, was that there was enough data to pursue 
trying to get a clinical approval or regulatory approval for treating obesity. They were not successful. We can go back and debate whether or not their studies were designed properly, whether they were including the right patient population, et cetera, or whether the demands that were put on them by the regulatory agencies were just too extreme, mm -hmm. um, all of which there's probably some truth to those. But subsequently, uh, other companies have gone after obesity as a target and type 2 diabetes and other metabolic disorders and have found have found similar similar positive benefits. I think, in fact, one of them was approved for the treatment of obesity, uh, one of the therapies, and it was actually not a stimulation of the cervical branch in the neck. It was a stimulation of the subdiaphragmatic branches of the vagus nerve associated with the stomach. Okay. So I guess they figured they were going to get closer. The signals were a little different, although I'm not certain that the, the mechanism is all that different. But there's a lot of potential benefit in that. And it, again, it shows how the different modalities, whether subdiaphragmatic or implanted in the cervical branch, are similar in their effectiveness. There is a lot of work that's being done with non-invasive uh, approaches, whether auricular or cervical, to demonstrate benefits in metabolic disease. None of that's been approved yet. Um, and I want to caution everybody who's listening. There are certain indications that have been approved, mm -hmm. um, and they are device-specific. Although we're talking about the fact that there's likely going to be shown across each of these indications a common benefit across these different modalities, implanted devices have been approved for the treatment of epilepsy. Implanted devices have been approved for the treatment of depression. Mm -hmm. Non-invasive devices have been approved for the treatment of headaches. There's work that's being done on obesity. There's work that's being done on type 2 diabetes. There's been work that's been done in treating anxiety conditions. In many cases, multiple modalities are being trialed. And generally, as a researcher in the space, if I see benefits accruing by one technique, I feel relatively confident that the other techniques will also ultimately show them to be uh, provable or approved as well with similar results. An example uh, that you were bringing up was some of the autoimmune diseases, yes. things like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, Sjogren's syndrome, some really devastating conditions in people where the, the level of inflammation is very high mm -hmm. and there are typically collateral problems, comorbidities that go along with the, the primary indication, for example, in rheumatoid arthritis or in in inflammatory bowel disease, there are cognitive damage or cognitive problems that these patients complain about. Things, fatigue is such a huge complaint among these people, both mental and physical fatigue, which you can see is very clearly associated with the systemic inflammation that they're experiencing. You have brain fog, which is a cognitive problem associated with a peripheral inflammation, and we've talked about that in the past as well. Vagus nerve stimulation is being trialed in treating each one of these conditions we just talked about. There's work, pilot studies in Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease that have been conducted over in, in France. There's U.S. work that's been done in multiple pilot studies looking at treatment of, with implantable devices, treating rheumatoid arthritis. Non-invasive devices have been trialed looking at Sjogren's disease. It was a non-invasive cervical approach looking at treating Sjogren's disease. And in each case, what we see is a reduction in the inflammatory cytokines that are associated with that condition that are likely driving the symptomatology and the degeneration and the tissue damage. In each case, we're seeing the ability to suppress that inflammation because that's the primary mechanism. And it doesn't really matter which technique you use, provided you're actually stimulating the vagus nerve with the right frequency and the right amplitude, you're going to trigger that anti-inflammatory pathway. Which is really exciting because it, it is very far-reaching. And yes, thank you for that disclaimer. It's very important to understand if you're listening today or watching that what we're talking about are future research topics that are coming up. And it's exciting what could be coming up over the next many years. But be very cautious and be very particular about the device and the approvals that have been provided both geographically through, uh, if you're in the United States, it's FDA, EU uh, for the European Union, Health Canada for Canada. And just be very particular about what you're using, both if you're a practitioner, what you're prescribing to your patients. And if you're a patient looking for uh, a good device that you're interested in potentially utilizing or sharing with a practitioner. So be really cautious. 
because we want to follow regulations. And so our disclaimer is don't just use any vagus nerve stimulating device for any condition that we've talked about today unless there's actual approvals. Although we do believe, I agree 100% <laughs> with your caution and your statements, but I do believe that ultimately it is going to be demonstrated that it's, it's the mechanism of action that's being triggered. It's not specifically associated with whether or not you had surgery or you stimulated in the ear or you stimulated in the neck. It is a mechanism that's being triggered. Yeah. Much the same way, some classes of medication, if a certain class of, of blood pressure medication doesn't work for you, a physician isn't going to necessarily give you a, another medication that works by the same mechanism. He's going to shift to a different medication that has a different mechanism. And so I think what we're going to find is that there's a class of treatment associated with vagus nerve stimulation. And whether or not you're you got one R versus another R versus another won't really matter. Yeah. But that's yet to be proved from a regulatory standpoint. And a lot of the conditions that we're talking about, while they're in early studies and they're very positive and they have very similar mechanistic reasons to believe why they would work, they haven't been approved yet. Mm -hmm. There are some exciting things in, in cognitive enhancement that might sit outside the scope of what could be approved from a regulatory standpoint. There are certain things that we can do around sleep. There are certain things that we can do around mood. Um, there are certain things we can do in those areas that may be less regulatory-based. And I think that's probably where we're going to really confirm for everybody that each mechanism or each modality really works very similarly. Because if you can show that cognitive benefits associated with vagus nerve stimulation are similar across implanted versus the various different ways of doing it non-invasively, well, that tells you something. And if you can say, well, stress management, my levels of stress are better as a result of stimulating, and it doesn't matter which modality, that's another clue on the path. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately the research and the experiences uh, and ultimately the clinical work will validate that, but it's yet to be proved. I think everybody in the field sort of senses that that's where it's going, but it's not there yet. Yeah, and once we get there, it'll be really exciting for all of the amazing, wonderful potential uses that we, we have under this one umbrella. But I think this is a really exciting future for vagus nerve stimulation. It's clearly come a long way from the carotid, deep carotid massage and uh, from the surgical implantations and the cyberonics work that was done. It's clearly come a really long way. And so we're really excited for what the future holds in vagus nerve stimulation, both invasive and non, um, because the effects could be really wide reaching and very beneficial for a lot of people. I'm a believer, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, wonderful episode, thank you so much for joining me on this today. I think this is a great place to kind of end it. And uh, yeah, if you're listening or watching, thank you for staying till the end and please share this with anyone that you feel could use a bit of a health upgrade. Have a wonderful day and we'll talk soon.